Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. I got news for you, David. Yeah. We have message boards on the Paracast.com. Does anybody do. care? Have the men in black posted yet? Uh, well, we invite anybody, even the men in black, to post theparacast.com, and there are two links to our forums. And you're welcome to post your messages, comments, criticisms, and by the way, we have a special feature that prohibits dirty words. Really? That's right. So no dust mites? No dust mites. No mud? No mud, no dust mites. Folks, you're in the Paracast, and we have a very unusual show today. More unusual than usual. <laughs> That's hard to even say. So how unusual is our show? Are we going to have an actual alien on? Well, unless you are, or I am, but Don Ecker is not an alien, but he is the research director of UFO Magazine, but he is also a person who's interested in the legends of ancient astronauts. Not like old astronauts from, like, the space program in the 60s. We're talking about a lot older. We're not talking also about the movie Space Cowboys, the oh Clint God. Eastwood movie. I think he'd like to forget that. I think he would. But we're not talking about that movie either. We're talking about aliens who allegedly came to our world back in ancient times, and maybe they had something to do with seeding us or genetic engineering. Who knows? That would explain a lot. Well, I don't want anyone out there to say that we are failures, especially David and myself because we think we are one of the better successes of the aliens. But seriously, we also have on the show Ken Thomas, who is one of America's foremost conspiracy researchers. And what does that mean? Well, he looks into the legends or the reality behind some of the conspiracies related to the Kennedy assassination. He's also going to talk about something called the Maury Island UFO incident and how it may relate to the Kennedy assassination, and I will say no more. I think I've said enough. So the aliens killed JFK? Well, I don't know if we can quite put it that way. I mean, that's too weird even for us, Gene. Yes, I don't think that's really what is going on here, but we'll find out with Ken Thomas. And we're going to have some really exciting guests coming in the next few weeks. We're going to definitely talk about cryptozoology, Bigfoot and all the rest, with Lauren Coleman, and we'll announce that real soon. And don't forget, check out our new message boards at theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Don't miss it. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete 
dossier. So, Don, a question we ask everyone on the Paracast. How did you first get interested in unidentified flying objects? Oh, well, actually, my interest goes back to the 60s when uh, I first discovered books by the likes of Major Don Keyhole. Yes. Uh, NICAP and uh, Frank Edwards. And, of course, in 1966, with the uh, explosion in the media then of the Hillsdale, Michigan sightings, this created quite a, uh, quite a media stir at the time with uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who at that time was the Air Force's Project Blue Book astronomer who traveled up the Hillsdale to investigate uh, those claims of sightings by UFOs, by, by the students and townspeople up there. And I was really, even at, at my relatively young age, and I was a, a teenager then, I was really amazed by absolutely the ludicrous explanations that came out. If you may recall at that time when uh, Heinick was up in Hillsdale and the Air Force team came in, he proposed that it might have been swamp gas. And we're talking about Michigan, a relatively cold state in the wintertime, and this took place in March. So those explanations just never sat right with me. But over the years, I kind of became uh, somewhat inured to, to UFO stuff. And, you know, I was young. I went off to college. Then I was in the Army. And when I came back in, uh, in the early 70s from the service, uh, I can recall that I was reading... Uh, a magazine, and I saw an ad for a, a soon-to-be-published book by an author I had uh, encountered before, John Keel. Yes, and I was yes. Really intrigued by uh, by the title of this book. It was called The Mothman Prophecies. So I went down to my local bookstore. I'm uh, originally from the state of Pennsylvania. And I went down to my bookstore and put an order in for it and got a copy as soon as it was available. Took it home, read it, and I got to tell you, I was absolutely flabbergasted by uh, by Kiel's writing and by the uh, the nature of the case that he was talking about that literally took place in the uh, mid 60s 66 67 on my doorstep uh, West Virginia was only a, a short skip hop and jump from my hometown in PA and I can recall hearing some, back in those days, hearing some news reports. But I kind of shined it on at the time. But reading this book, I was absolutely stunned. Now, granted, in that book, Keel was not uh, really ignored with the idea that these might have been uh, extraterrestrials. He coined another term that also intrigued me by suggesting that perhaps they were ultra-terrestrials. Right. At any rate, I was absolutely astounded, and I began thinking then, and we're talking about circa 1975 or, or thereabouts, we're talking about the suggestion that perhaps, even though UFOs were a very strange phenomenon, 
perhaps they weren't E.T. And I began thinking like that. Well, in 1977, I came across another book by an author I was not familiar with, a gentleman by the name of Zachariah Sitchin. And this book was called The Twelfth Planet. Now, reading this book for the very first time, once again, I must say I was amazed. Sitchin was an ancient language linguist. Uh, later on, I, I had an opportunity to meet Zachariah, and we became very good friends. And I count him as one of my friends today, and I have to tell you, even after all these years, the level of his scholarship has always impressed me to the umph degree. But reading the book back in 1977, Sitchin's suggestion taken from the ancient manuscripts that he himself translated from ancient Samaria, the cradle of what is all human civilization today, he suggested, and I came to agree with the idea, that perhaps at some point in our very distant past, that the Earth was, in fact, visited by extraterrestrials. And to go ahead with what the Sumerians themselves said, these visitors, these Nephilim, those who came from heaven, lowered the gift of civilization to humankind. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, as the Sumerians themselves stated, they were handed the reins of kingship. In other words, government was taught to them. They learned from these visitors about agriculture, mathematics, even medicine. And it was a genuinely enlightening moment for me when I read that. So I, I think that Sitchin was beyond any doubt onto something. Well, that's a great beginning. Let me just tell everybody you're in the Paracast. We're proud to welcome Don Ecker to our show. Don, among other things, is a very active writer and researcher. He's also the research director of UFO Magazine. And he's also the author of a horror thriller, and we'll ask him about that book a little bit later. Now, this concept of so-called ancient astronauts, which is alien beings visiting Earth over the years. Of course, we have Eric Von Daniken, Brinsley Laporte Trench, other people who wrote books about this over the years about this concept. Now, do you think there's a central focus, or do you think that Sitchin, on one hand, and these other people have different approaches to that particular mystery? Well, it's funny you should mention Von Daniken. Uh, back in 1993, uh, Von Danik and I was, uh, myself and my wife, who was the editor and formerly the chief publisher of UFO Magazine, uh, were invited to go to Vienna, Austria, to lecture at the First World UFO Congress. And one of the uh, the individuals that came in to hear my talk was Von Daniken. He and I met, very charming men, uh, and I read quite a few of his books back in the 60s uh, when he was, at that time, uh, prolifically writing uh, quite a few books. However, I, I came to the conclusion that Mr. Von Daniken never met uh, any ancient myth or uh, story that he didn't fully embrace, if you know what I'm saying. 
and I thought that uh, his scholarship was not nearly to the level of somebody like a Zechariah Sitchin. Uh, whereas Sitchin is genuinely uh, a very in-depth scholar, I thought that in comparison, Von Daniken's research left a lot to be desired in comparison to Sitchin. However, be that as it may, the idea of ancient visitors or extraterrestrials coming to this planet is not something that is new. And it certainly is not something that started either with Von Daniken or with Sitchin. Did you ever hear uh, of a person named Yona Fortner? I'm sorry? Ever hear the name Yona Fortner? Yona Fortner. No, I, I, I must say offhand I'm not familiar with that. Okay, back in the late 50s in Saucer News, Jim Mosley's magazine, when it was a serious magazine before it became Saucer Smear, this Hebrew scholar, and he used the name Y.N. Ibn Aharon, he wrote at that time something called extraterrestrialism as an historical doctrine. I knew Yona for many, many years. He died a few years ago. And he was talking about these things then. In the late 50s, even, well, the only writer who I think beat him to the punch in terms of writing about so-called ancient astronauts was Desmond Leslie, who co-wrote that book with George Adamski, Flying Saucers Have Landed. Except right, his yes. part was the serious part. Adamski was the part that you may or may not take seriously because he meets blonde, silver, uniformed aliens in the desert. But the first part by Desmond Leslie was talking about the same possibilities. I, I am familiar with Mr. Leslie. And uh, yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree. The idea of ancient astronauts, of uh, extremely early visits by by extraterrestrials is, is not a new thing. So what we have to do if we are genuinely interested in research are going with the people that have very solid academic background, a la Zachariah Sitchin. The thing about Sitchin's work that has impressed me for well over 20 years is the fact that his scholarship has never been successfully challenged, ever. Only his conclusions by the mainstream have been challenged, not his, his literal translations. So what Sitchin is saying, in effect, is, well, the Sumerians state in this book that this happened, that the Lord High God of On came down to this city for a visit. And, you know, there were weeks and weeks of celebrations and what have you, as taken from the ancient historical records. So I'm suggesting that perhaps at this time, someone came down from the sky. And these early peoples, of course, because they were just absolutely astounded at the technology that was observed, took these people to be gods or sky spirits. And they're relating what actually happened, a genuine event. Even though they may have misinterpreted it from a supernatural aspect, that they're recounting what they observed, what they witnessed. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to welcome Don Eckert to our microphones. On this week's episode, Don is Research Director of UFO Magazine, longtime researcher and writer. And he also is author of a horror thriller. And after Don finishes asking the question, the answer of which I interrupted, we'll ask him about that. Don, go ahead. Yeah, so at any rate, Sitchin is basically stating in his thesis that these people simply recounted what they observed, and because they were very limited technologically, many things that today we would recognize as technology, they attributed to supernatural influences. And I think it's a a sound premise, Gene. Some are suggesting that maybe the human race itself is part of either some effort of seeding some kind of life form on this planet by alien beings or a genetic (laughs) or for example a genetic experiment of some kind that we took or the aliens took some kind of humanoid race or whatever pre-humanoid race seeded them with genetic changes and they became us well that is certainly something I would not discount. For how many years now have our uh, anthropologists, archaeologists, scientists been searching for the quote-unquote missing link between Homo sapiens sapien, us, and our earlier ancestors? Uh, there seems to be uh, a sudden jump, not only in uh, uh, our bodies, but our brain capacities just as as shortly as uh, maybe 200,000 years ago. There seemed to be a leap in technology, if you will, although in this case it would be biological technology, and no one can explain it. This makes me wonder about a question, Don, that keeps coming up in this show. Let's assume for a minute that the Sumerians were indeed visited by some sort of an extraterrestrial presence. My question about this, this might seem like a simplistic question, what would be the motive, what would be the benefit to an extraterrestrial presence coming down and seeding information, knowledge, uh, you were talking about the political system being given to them. What would be the benefit to a visitor to do this with humans outside of genetic experimentation what would be the way for them what would be their motivation okay uh let's jump right into the works of sitchin and see what he translated from the sumerian text one of the reasons that these visitors the sumerians claimed came for was for that element of the gods, gold. Now, you and I both know that gold has great intrinsic value. It's the basis of our monetary system. But six, eight, ten thousand years ago, what would have been the use of gold uh, to those people? Well, The Sumerians, of course, utilized gold for a lot of things, including things like jewelry making. But these visitors demanded it. And before I give you some of the possible explanations, let me preface this by saying that gold mines have been discovered 
right down here on planet Earth in places like South Africa that have been dated going back 60,000 plus years. Really? Yes. Now, who conceivably would have had a use for gold 60,000 years ago? Well, obviously not human beings, uh, because if you're talking about utilizing gold as a tool, it's too soft, too malleable. You couldn't make a weapon with it, for example. But what else is gold used for? Things like electronics. Mm -hmm. Electronics would be a perfect reason. Plus... According to the ancient Sumerian text, these visitors, the Nephilim, were utilizing gold in, on their planet, and this is the way it was described, to shield the sky of their planet from harmful cosmic rays. Now, who knows ultimately what, uh, what uses visitors may have been using for gold, but this was the Sumerian explanation. Now, to get back to why would uh, an extraterrestrial race want to tinker with human beings? Mm -hmm. Well, let's go back to our Bible. Not only the Christian Bible, but also uh, the, uh, the, the original first book, Genesis, in the Hebrew Bible. What was the first human called? That, well, according to the Bible, Adam. Adam, exactly. Right. Now, what did Adam mean in the Sumerian? It meant worker. The suggestion was that the two chief gods that the Sumerians spoke about, Enlil and Enki, came down here to what they referred to as an earth mission. And they did a lot of different things. You really should get Sitchin's first three or four books and read them. The Twelfth Planet, uh, The Stairway to Heaven, uh, The Wars of Gods and Men, even Genesis Revisited, to get a really healthy background into what Sitchin has uncovered. But to get back to it, Enki and Lil came down here. And they brought with them their worker Nephilim, their, their own workers, their own extraterrestrial force. And after a period of time, according to the ancient Sumerian text, they had a revolt on their hands. These uh, Nephilim were tired of being worked to death. So as a result... They had a biological mission come down here, and the Sumerians go into this in, in great detail. One of their goddesses, who was apparently a biology uh, and geneticist, and they tinkered with early proto-humans and created the atom, the first workers, that then took over the heavy labor from the Nephilim. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
Let me pause for one second and tell our listeners that you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're joined by Don Ecker. And Don is a research director for UFO Magazine, a longtime researcher, writer. And before you finish that answer and we cover this past history, you have a horror thriller book that has been published. Can you tell us briefly about it, how to get a copy? And let's then return to the story of the ancient astronauts. Well, you bet. Uh, the, the name of my novel is Past Sins, a novel of supernatural horror. And basically, what the novel is about, and I guess in many ways you could say I kind of ripped it from today's headlines, the secret government, if you will, intelligence services, back in the mid-1960s, just after we stepped back from the nuclear precipice of Soviet missiles in Cuba. You know, we almost went to an atomic holocaust in 1962. And reading that history can be quite frightening. But in the novel, the Central Intelligence Agency discovered in Eastern Europe a supernatural creature thought to be mythological. And as a result of finding this creature, they brought it back to the United States under the utmost secrecy and, and covert nature that all intelligence is supposed to be about anyway. And they attempted to weaponize this creature in their covert war with the Soviet KGB. And the novel takes place at the beginning of this century, the 21st century, when one of these creatures get away from them and the true horror begins. And it's basically the government trying to cover their butt while this creature, which has its own intentions, basically goes on a rampage. And uh, it's the local, state, municipal uh, authorities that initially try to deal with this, and they're quite astounded by what the nature of this creature is. Definitely a novel about a monster on the loose. And where can we get a copy? Well, one can go up to my website, which is www.pastsins.net. And uh, you can go directly to the publisher uh, for an electronic book copy or to Amazon.com where you can get a hardback copy of the book. Well, best of luck with it, and I look forward to reading a copy myself. Now, we're talking about some pretty interesting things that are going on here back in our early, early history, and maybe we can continue on that thing. Go ahead, Don. Well, at, uh, uh, at any rate, basically, all of these revelations that Sitchin has written about, and he stressed this personally to me on, on a number of occasions, are not his conclusions. He's simply relating what the, the actual Sumerian text uh, have recounted. And like I said, uh, Sitchin's scholarship, his translation, his interpretation 
these ancient texts have never been successfully challenged. Uh, only the conclusions that he came to as a result of translating these texts. And those conclusions are, in a nutshell, that at some point in our past, perhaps starting 430,000 or so years ago, that visitors came down to planet Earth and basically put a mission down here uh, in the Middle East in several places, not the least of which uh, in what is present-day Iraq and in Jerusalem and Israel, but a number of other places, and they were carrying out a long-term mission and operation here on planet Earth. Well, what's the ultimate goal of that mission? Well, I don't know, David, to be honest with you. Uh, I can tell you what apparently what it appeared to be initially, uh, and that was mining, among other things. They ended up apparently uh, genetically tinkering with the human race, initially for the reason of, of securing workers that they could, in effect, exploit. But if you take a look at even current UFO information, it would appear from at least testimony from quite a few people that uh, this tinkering may in fact be going on, if you give any credence at all, to the, uh, the abduction phenomenon that has been reported for years. It would be therefore a fair assumption that the beings who were involved in our early history are the same beings who are coming here, here and now. That is certainly possible. Now, I have always, as, as a researcher myself, I have always stayed away from accounts of abductions and so forth. The cases that have always interested me have actually been in two areas. Uh, one area involves the military forces of this planet as they've encountered the phenomenon. Primarily the United States, but it's certainly there have been many other military organizations around the world. The second series of reports that have interested me uh, to a, an extremely high degree have involved those cases where apparently uh, there have been encounters in near-Earth space, near-Earth orbit. Now, for years, uh, although I haven't been real active in the last couple of years, but for years I've been involved in researching, and ultimately at some point I'm going to write a book about it, lunar phenomena, lunar accounts that have preceded the Apollo program by literally hundreds of years and have also included accounts by world-renowned astronomers going back to the 16th century of unexplained and inexplicable phenomena on the moon. So these are the areas that I have really uh, devoted most of my research to. Can you give us some examples of that, Don? Of lunar phenomenon? Yeah. Oh, sure. Uh, for example, were you aware that prior to the successful launch of Apollo 11 in 1969, that in 1968, 
that NASA conducted a an intensive four or five year study in lunar phenomenon. Uh, I believe, and I don't have it in front of me here now, but I believe it was NASA Technical Report two seven seven. I believe I, I will have to check that, but it's available, incidentally, uh, on the internet. And what they did was go back and recount reports of astronomers going back to. Uh, I think one of the earliest was something like 1540 A.D. with reports of inexplicable lights on the moon, clouding or obscuring craters on the moon, uh, all the way up to the 1950s and early 1960s with reports coming in from astronomers around the world of things like lunar domes that have been reported by astronomers that will be in one area one week. A week later, they've moved literally to a different geographical location. These things were recounted in detail by this NASA technical report. Now, one can only presume why NASA was so interested in that, especially when it's not as well known today. I mean, people just, quite frankly, stopped watching the moon. But what these uh, these reports seem to indicate uh, is that at the time, they were very interested in what our astronauts might encounter when they got to the moon. Now, once again, we're going on speculation here, but I have speculated for a very long time that if any of these UFO reports were, in fact, an extraterrestrial intelligence, a manufactured object from some other world that has been coming here for whatever reason, the only thing that ever made sense, they certainly would not be going Earth from their planet every time somebody reported one. It would only make sense that there would be a base in uh, close proximity to planet Earth. And what would be a better base than our own moon? And there have been suggestions that uh, perhaps there has been an alien presence on the moon for an extraordinarily long time. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me interrupt here and explain that during the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we have Don Ecker joining us. He is research director for UFO Magazine. That's UFO or UFOMag.com to learn more. He's been studying the subject for a number of years. Very interested, obviously, in the legends or the reality behind ancient astronauts. But I have one other question, Don, which kind of relates back to the opening question, which is how you got interested in the subject. You read books from John Keel. And by the way, I should mention that the Mothman Prophecies, the book, is not quite close to the movie The Mothman Prophecies with Richard Gere that was fiction. The book is based on something that's supposed to be fact. 
But John Kill talked about ultra-terrestrials, maybe some kind of intelligence way beyond our understanding, not just aliens and spaceships. That was something he really didn't necessarily accept. But looking at the pattern of your discussion here, it is a concept that you accept. So can I take it that you disagree with what Kiel wrote? I disagree with many of John's conclusions, not with what he wrote. Uh, as a matter of fact, a number of years ago, uh, when we were fast approaching the 50th anniversary of the Roswell event, John wrote an article which we published in UFO magazine that created a, 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 a small firestorm suggesting that what the debris found on the Brazel Ranch was in fact a Japanese fugo balloon. Uh, that had somehow... Now, do you, do you know what those balloons were, Gene? No. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Perhaps I should explain that. At the height of the Second World War, after we, the Americans and the Allies, were invading a lot of Japanese-held islands in the Pacific and we were driving Japanese forces back toward Japan, they could no longer mount a successful offensive to strike the heart of the United States. So somebody came up with the idea of creating these balloons, uh, like a hot air balloon, that were filled with uh, helium gas or, or whatever substance they were using, attaching bombs to them and releasing them into the jet stream with the full hopes and intention that the jet stream would bring these balloons uh, all the way to the United States where they would release their bomb load. Now, this actually happened. A number of balloons, in fact, did reach the American mainland. And as a matter of fact, in uh, either Utah or I believe it was Utah, a, uh, a family discovered one of these crashed balloons while they were out on a picnic in 1945, if my memory is serving me, and uh, they had several deaths when somebody found one of these bombs that hadn't exploded and uh, caused a detonation. So these actually did get here. Well, what Keel suggested is that one of these balloons was actually what was discovered by Mac Brazel on his ranch, not the debris from a, from a crashed UFO or other aircraft, okay? So when uh, John came out with that article, he was roundly criticized by many in the research community. And I talked to John about that. And I said, John, uh, the majority of these balloons were made out of a reinforced rice paper. And Roswell, whatever it was, happened it was in June of 1947. So what yeah. you're suggesting is that this balloon would have had to have stayed aloft for at least two years in the jet stream. <laughs> And it just doesn't make any sense. But he was very adamant about his articles. So, you know, we're, we're certainly not in uh, the business of telling other researchers how they should think, and we ran it as, as it was. But uh, I've, I've always had 
some uh, cause for debate with Kiel's conclusions regarding the overall UFO phenomenon. You know, I kind of wish that we have John Keel join us on one of these shows, but I talked to him a few weeks ago, and he regards himself as essentially retired from the whole thing. He said, I've said everything that has to be said, and now I'm going to get on with the remainder of my life. So that's kind of unfortunate, but it's interesting to see where this is this has come about. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, John John has done a lot of what I consider to be great work back in the 60s and early 70s. And and like I said, his book Mothman Prophecies absolutely stunned me in my first reading. So, uh, I've got uh, the highest respect and regard for Keel. Well, let's hope that someday we'll have him on the show. We can talk to him further about it. One thing that kind of bugs me, and David and I have talked about this on several shows with several of our guests, and that is that we are all over 40 without mentioning our ages, our respective ages. But unfortunately, a lot of the people who are involved in the subject are the same. They are not as young as we were when we got started. You see, when I was a teenager, when you were a teenager, David, etc., this was something we did. Now the kids aren't getting involved in anything like this. Do you have any feeling as to why? Well, I would have to say, Gene and David, that uh, UFOs, much like scotch, is an acquired taste. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons why, you know, I think uh, a lot of younger people might find this to be, dare I say it, a bit on the fringe, unless, of course, they, in fact, had a sighting of the phenomenon. Uh, I was either lucky or cursed to have a sighting, uh, rather astounding a sighting, a sighting of, of the uh, phenomenon in 1966. And that, more than anything else, told me that there was something to this phenomenon. And, of course, media-wise, there was quite a bit that was happening with the subject during those, those times in the 60s. Today, not so much, unlike the early 90s when you couldn't turn on the TV and not see some type of programming devoted to UFO or UFOs. So uh, I think the other thing perhaps might be the fact that, let's face it, this subject does not have uh, a university degree or a trade school that one can go to. And as a result of that, over the years, many questionable people have associated themselves with the subject and many questionable people have come out with extremely questionable claims expecting uh, the public which unfortunately often they will do is take it to heart without the least shred of proof or evidence if you know what I mean uh, there have been many charlatans uh, that have associated themselves with this field. Uh, I think in some cases simply as an attempt to make a quick buck. And when some of these hoaxes have been exposed and some of these peoples have been exposed, you know, that has a tendency to turn off some of the more rational folk that were initially willing to take a look at this subject. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
You're in the Paracast yeah. with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Our guest is Don Ecker. One more session going on here, and we're going to explore some final questions with Don. He's research director for UFO Magazine. If you go to ufomag.com, if you go to ufomag.com, you'll learn more about the publication. And Don also has a very interesting, intriguing horror thriller, a fictional presentation which seems to involve conspiracy theories and everything else and a creature on the loose. And, Don, one more time, where can we get a copy and what's the title of the book? The title of the book is Past Sins, a novel of supernatural horror. And you can go up to the website, www.pastsins.com. Net, and uh, there is a link. I mean, there's a lot of information up there, including an excerpt from the novel, uh, some of the uh, book reviews that I've uh, received, information on the topic. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's even an interview uh, with me, the author, up there. And uh, there are links that will take you directly to Dark Realm Publishing, which is the publisher of the book. For an electronic book copy that you can put on your uh, ebook reader or your computer, or you can go up directly from the website to Amazon.com. It will take you right, uh, link right to the novel where uh, you can find out more information on, uh, on getting it from Amazon. Okay, David, you had a question? I think what Don said is exactly right. I think that there are a lot of charlatans that have gotten involved in this field. And I think it's turned a lot of people off. I mean, it's, it, quite frankly, Gene, it's one of the reasons I haven't spoken as much about my experience. It's because I feel that the field is a little less than legitimate. I, I think also the media has marginalized UFOs. They've, they've turned them into entertainment, and a lot of the sense of wondering what the real phenomenon is has been sort of annihilated or eliminated from any kind of serious sober public discussion and i think that's sad because clearly there are still sightings going on and there are still people who are having these experiences so it's not like this has gone away well i'll give you an example david back in the early nineties ninety one and ninety two i personally broke two huge stories on national television one involved a soviet from the former Soviet Union, a Soviet space probe that uh, uh, was a Mars probe, Phobos II, which encountered, according to Glav Cosmos, their unmanned space agency, a huge anomaly, photographed this anomaly, and subsequently their craft, their probe, was struck, they claimed at the time, by this anomaly, and it was destroyed. Now, I got the only photograph that was sent back prior to the destruction of the Phobos II probe from Colonel Marina Popovich, the Soviet-Russian female Chuck Yeager. Okay, mm. this woman was amazing. She came over here on several speaking tours about her experiences in the as a as an aviator uh in the early 90s uh she is still i'm trying to think now if it was almost a hundred or it might have been a hundred world aviation records that this woman 
set in her career in the Soviet Air Force. Now, she was married to General Pavel Popovich, the first human being to rendezvous with another spacecraft in Earth orbit in 1962. Okay, now we were talking about the cream de la cream of Soviet society. Now, I met her in April of 1991 down in Tucson and had had the experience of interviewing her over two days because one of the things that she was over here speaking really frankly about was UFO encounters in the former Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. And this was some amazing information. Now, this woman, like I said, was a retired Red Air Force colonel. She had a Ph.D. in uh, aviation and technology. So this was no schlub, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Definitely not. Sounds very prestigious. But i got to tell you something, Don. I think we're out of time. So why don't we do this here? Let's call this part one of an interview that's going to be continuing over a long period of time because there's lots of ground for us to cover. I want to thank you again, Don Ecker, Research Director for UFO Magazine. And the name of your novel, once again, is... Past Sins, a novel of supernatural horror. Past Sins, a novel of supernatural horror. You go to what? Pastsins.net. www.pastsins.net. You bet, Gene. Okay, Don Ecker, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Don. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Oh, man. So this has all been going on for a long time, I guess, huh? Long before you and I were ever around. That's right. And evidently, if we can believe what Don has just told us, the aliens who visited us in prehistoric times have been watching over us all this time. Certainly, there's a lot of unexplained stuff in ancient texts, and there's all sorts of weird cave paintings. But uh, it's hard for me to get my brain around the idea that aliens have been among us for thousands of years. The skeptic in me screams out that, there's a bunch of optimism there, but perhaps less than compelling evidence. What do you think? This gets to be a whole can of worms here, because we can then say that anything that we can't understand in our early history was due to the aliens coming here, and then we could even say that the so-called gods of ancient Egypt were really aliens, but that's almost a science fiction concept, too. Stargate. Yeah, the Stargate story is based on a whole concept. All they did was just take that idea and weave a science fiction series and movie about it, that's all. Yeah, the notion that it was impossible to build the pyramids. I mean, we've we've had experiments with contemporary builders and artisans who have proved that, indeed, these structures could have been built by humans with limited technology. Just a lot of sweat. Right, well, they have to sweat quite a bit. Well, especially in the desert. Of course, right here in Arizona, you know, we have 120 in the shade, and imagine what they're encountering over in Iraq. But right now on the Paracast, we're not going to talk about aliens except as they relate to conspiracy theories with Ken Thomas. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. 
fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at mrufo at webtv.net. It's all out of this world. Okay, so riddle me this. What was the Maury Island incident, and how does it relate in any way to a conspiracy theory? <laughs> well, for one thing, the Maury Island incident was the very first UFO incident in the, the modern post-war wave. Well, that's usually you know, attributed to Kenneth Arnold, but they actually the Maury Island case happened three days before Kenneth Arnold. And it involves people... Uh, who were later subpoenaed by Jim Garrison in New Orleans in 1960. It's a 1947 UFO case, but these people were, or at least this one person, Fred Crisman, was subpoenaed by Jim Garrison in 1968 in New Orleans as part of his investigation of the Kennedy assassination. Whoa. So, <laughs> yeah. so, all right, all right, just uh, my mind is boggling here. Just give me a second here. My mind is boggling. Okay, so what was this guy's connection with Maury Island? Well, Fred Crisman was uh, the the second witness at Maury Island. The first was a guy named Harold Dahl, and Dahl was a guy who was basically salvaging logs in a in a boat out in the harbor in Puget Sound when uh, he saw about a half a dozen uh, flying saucers, most of them circling around, circling around one that was was wobbling, and he had this whole encounter with these. Uh, with these saucers, and he went back and he reported them to his friend, Fred Crisman. Now, according to some accounts, he considered Crisman his boss or whatever. But Crisman went down the next day, and he had a sighting himself. So, so Crisman, that, that's, that's the main connection. Who these guys were, they, they were basically uh, salvage, uh, freelance log salvagers. You know, that's the way the timber industry works, logs that break free from when they're being, you know, shipped via the waterways, if they break free, they all, they're, they're branded. All these logs are branded. And the ones that break free need to be returned to whatever timber company they belong to. So these guys would go out, and there was a reward. They would go out and recover these logs and, and get the reward. And in the process of doing this, they, that's when they saw the Maury Island UFO. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Ken Thomas. He's publisher of Steam Shovel Press which is a conspiracy magazine, and somehow we're going to link up a conspiracy here, beginning with the Maury Island UFO sighting in 1947, and somehow ending up with the Kennedy assassination. And that's going to be strange, and I'm real curious how this is going to happen. Okay. Well, actually, it, it doesn't even end with the Kennedy assassination. Uh -oh. uh, the conspiracies behind this go on basically to another generation, because one of the people, uh, Fred Crisman, one of the people who considered Fred Crisman his father, was the main informant for The Octopus Conspiracy, which is basically my most known book. This book called The Octopus, Danny Casalero, and The Promise Software, and those events lead right up into stuff that's going on today. All right, let's now segue here. We have the UFO sighting in 1947. When does Fred Chrisman turn up again? Was that the Garrison subpoena? After the Maury Island, the original Maury Island, witnessing the Maury Island case, uh, there was the investigation. And, uh, and actually, when you get into Fred Chrisman's life, he was on the scene before the Maury Island case. He had written letters to, uh, uh, to Ray Palmer, who had published pulp magazines, about the Daros, and he told these, he wrote these letters, told these stories about fighting these underground 
uh, creatures in caverns in Burma and actually being shot in the arm by something that uh, you know, sounded very eerily like a laser, considering that lasers weren't invented at the time. So he was already on the scene before this witnessing thing happened. And then there was an investigation. Palmer hired, actually, Kenneth Arnold to investigate. And Kenneth Arnold tapped a couple of Air Force officers who investigated this stuff. One of the aspects of the Moy Island case is that they recovered some debris, uh, what they call flag or, you know, just something that had been spewed out from the UFOs. So these Air Force officers came to investigate and recovered some of the debris. And then when they were returning to, uh, they're taking some of it back to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, their, their plane crashed and they were both killed. And so Chrisman was a big part of that. With the debris, nobody ever got a hold of any pieces of this debris? Yeah, the debris was, was never, well, there are actually uh, photographs of something in an FBI file that they say are the debris, but officially, no, it was never recovered. Uh, Kenneth Arnold said he had some. He said, he, and he had films. The, uh, uh, Chrisman and Dahl took, uh, took Arnold down to the uh, site where they saw the UFO, and, 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 and Arnold actually filmed it all, but all that was stolen from him in the mid-'70s. So Arnold so, says no. he saw this UFO as well. This was a multiple sighting in terms of a recurring sighting. Well, Arnold saw his UFO, his chevrons, a right. few days after the original Maury Island cases. And then, like I said, he was hired to investigate the Maury Island case. He wasn't a witness to the Maury Island thing uh, per se, uh, although there was, there was more than, than Dahl and Crisman. Actually, Dahl was on a boat full of people, including uh, his son, Charles, and, uh, and, in fact, the stuff that spewed out from the saucer killed Charles's dog. So this dog, I, I always list this dog who I call Sparky because supposedly this, uh, this spew was sparkled. He's like the first casualty of the modern UFO age. But I want to get this timeline straight. Kenneth Arnold was called in to investigate this before his own sighting? No. Uh, Kenneth Arnold okay. had his own sighting three days after Maury Island. And then after that, because Got Arnold it. became so famous as a UFO person, he was hired to investigate Crisman and Dahl, to investigate their claims. He was hired by Ray Palmer. He was hired by Ray Palmer, that's right. And they wrote a book together called The Coming of the Saucers. That's right, but that, that book is that, that includes material on Maury Island, but it's primarily a book about Arnold's own experiences. And, uh, and Arnold kind of leaves it all unsettled about what happened. Because, again, the, 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 uh, the way it ended for all of them was this crash of this B-29, I think it was, that these two Air Force intelligence officers died in. It was at that point that Arnold said, uh, never mind, I, <laughs> I think I'll give up this investigation, okay? And there was never any official investigation of uh, Davidson and Brown, uh, Lieutenants Davidson and Brown were the two Air Force officers who died. Never any official, even though, you know, their plane was destroyed and it was all very curious circumstances, it was all dropped after that. Chrisman kind of goes back into the shadows, and uh, you don't hear about him again until Garrison subpoenas him in 1968. Okay, in 1968, why did Garrison subpoena Fred Chrisman? What is his apparent connection or alleged connection with the Kennedy assassination? Because I'm sure that Garrison didn't care, maybe he didn't even know about what was going on with regard to the UFO affairs. I hope, okay. I guess. Okay, no, that's wrong. Uh, actually, it's very weird because Jim Garrison was actually uh, an FBI SAC, a special agent in charge, in the Pacific Northwest in the late 40s. Oh. And, in fact, uh, he at the time, he knew a guy named Guy Bannister who was involved in another UFO mm. incident. And there's just absolutely no way that they could have been working up there at the time of the Moy Island case and had not known that that had happened. 
But officially, of course, you know, it's not like Garrison said, wow, I knew Crisman from the 40s and that UFO thing, I think I'll subpoena him. There's no really official connection. I mean, it takes a lot of digging to, to get these facts out. You know, that was the whole point of the book. I had to do all this through the Freedom of Information Act and, you know, just do a lot of, a lot of footwork. Did Crisman actually testify before Garrison or what? Yes, he gave testimony. He went to New Orleans. I don't, you know, it, was like, it wasn't like in an open hearing. There was an interview, and uh, also Garrison's investigators interviewed a number of his friends at the, at the time. So, yeah, they all provided testimony. They denied it, you know. Um, I, well, I should say that Garrison thought that uh, Crisman was Kennedy's assassin and that, uh, that at the time Crisman was working for what Garrison loosely redefined as the military-industrial complex specifically for Boeing, Boeing aircraft, which had lost the contract, a defense contract to General Dynamics because of what Kennedy had done. And in fact, when the day that Kennedy died, he was giving a speech about the, the TFX tactical fighter, which was the very contract that uh, was the disputed thing. And Garrison basically believed that Crispin was hired to shoot Kennedy. He thought he was one of the... Uh, the tramps behind the grassy knoll, in fact. Now, this now, Murray of course, comes out in Oliver Stone's movie, you realize. <laughs> I don't know. Do you remember Stone's movie? Oh, JFK, great film. Yeah, it's about the Garrison case. But if you remember, yeah. the, the person that he, he's actually prosecuting there is Clay Shaw. But also the line of dialogue that gives it all the way is that he says that Clay Shaw was not actually the assassin. He was a toehold on a bigger conspiracy. Garrison basically believed that Crisman was the trigger man. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Before we go on, let me tell our <laughs> listeners, this is I know it's complicated. <laughs> the Paracast. We're talking to Ken Thomas. He publishes Steam Shovel Press, a magazine covering conspiracies. And now we're talking about what might be the ultimate conspiracy, which is that of the Kennedy assassination. And we're finding this weird link between this one person, Fred Chrisman, who was involved in a UFO sighting in 1947, then turns up as an alleged trigger man in the Kennedy assassination in the 1960s. Now, this is getting crazier and crazier. So what happened to Chrisman after this? Well, Chrisman died in 1975 after uh, several years as a talk show a radio talk show. He was a, an allied profession to your own. He was kind of like the Rush Limbaugh of his day on uh, uh, up in Tacoma uh, under the uh, pen name of John Gold. He was a radio guy for many years, and then he, then he died of uh, cancer at age 75. Okay, nothing mysterious or conspiratorial about his death. I assume that was normal causes? Well, <laughs> it happened at, right at the time of... Uh, right at the beginning of the uh, House Select Committee on uh, the investigation of assassinations, which eventually did conclude that uh, there was a conspiracy in JFK death. And, uh, you know, it was a fast-acting cancer, and you could make the case for it that, that there was something involved there. Well, okay, Chrisman seems to have a strange work history. Was he some sort of government agent through all this, through all these years from the UFO sighting to the Kennedy assassination? What was he? Because it seemed to me, based on his original profession, that how could a guy like that be involved in all these crazy things? Well, you know, what kind of profession do you get into if you're a covert operative of some sort? 
you know, well, usually working some kind of pedestrian job, I would imagine, as cover. So you can't take that as a clue. He certainly claimed over the years, he, he was a semi-celebrity on the UFO circuit, and he claimed over the years that uh, he was an agent. And, there's, you, know, there's, you know, all the documentation is in the Moy Island book uh, about his background. Some of, the, some of the stuff is forged, some of it isn't. I don't know, do you remember the, uh, there was a TV show called The Invaders? In the 60s? Oh, yeah. Uh, with, with Roy Finnis. Crisman claimed that that show was based on him. Uh, others have said that because of his involvement in Maury Island and the, and the fact that he maybe he held on to some of that flag that the UFOs had given off as a means of manipulating his own career in the covert service, you know? Uh, in other words, you give me the choice assignments or I'm going to expose to the world this cover-up that you have about UFO activity. David, you must be champing at the bit right now. I'm, I'm just sort of looking at all this thinking, and then on top of this, the Maury Island incident also seems to be one of the first appearances of Men in Black. Oh, that's true. Yeah, actually, the very first appearance of the Men in Black uh, was uh, was to Harold Dahl, the original Maury Island witness. Harold Dahl was visited by a man in black, and the guy said, look, I know what you saw, and I'm telling you, you start telling people what you saw, and bad things will happen to you. And uh, his business began to fall apart. His son, who was on the ship with him, disappeared. Very weird incident. Disappeared and was found with amnesia. Uh, months later, in a in a completely different state, bussing tables. His wife fell ill. His his salvage business went to went to pot. And then at that point, he said, "Okay, well, <laughs> I get the point. I get the point." And Dahl at that point said, "From if anybody asked me hereafter about this thing, I will just say that it's a hoax." So he then claimed it was a hoax to try to protect himself and his family. Did he say then later on, maybe towards the end of his life, that it wasn't a hoax? Did he recant on that hoax story? Well, he basically told that story thereafter. I mean, he, he remained silent for a long time. Uh, Chrisman basically kind of hot-dogged the whole thing after that. But at, at some future point, Dahl said, well, this is what I said, and this is what happened to me, and this is what I said. I told people I would say it's a hoax. So he kind of left it up in the air. But, you know, most people realize that this is what happened, you know, that he was scared into, into calling it a hoax. And if, although you have rider after rider in the UFO field dismissing it as a hoax, just reading these statements from from Dahl and not giving it a second thought. You know, so that's why, you know, even though as fascinating as all this sounds, <laughs> there's only been one book ever written about this, and that was mine, and it was a real struggle getting that damn thing out uh, because it's so easy to dismiss as a hoax, you know. What do you think, Ken? Do you think it was a hoax? It's kind of less important to me than the fact that it's a key to understanding how the covert intelligence world Covert intelligence interacts with the ufological subculture. So this has been my specialty. You know, I do this magazine, Steam Shovel Press, and we really discuss all aspects of what I call parapolitics, but most people call conspiracy theories. And my particular specialty is tracking tracking that, you know, trying to understand what that's all about. You know, I, I've seen things like you know, absolute smoking gun proof for the existence of MJ-12, for instance. And, you know, there is something going on, and it's, it involves a cover-up, and uh, the Moy Island case is a big part of it. I, I haven't you know, actually held any of the Moy Island flag. I've, I've had my own UFO sightings and that kind of thing. But uh, whether it's a hoax or not, it's a, it's a legend. It's clearly a legend that's being used by uh, intelligence world. There was a book, actually, another book that covered it, The Report on UFOs by the late Edward Ruppelt. And he referred to Palmer as, quote, unquote, the Chicago publisher. And somehow, I guess, imply that he was responsible for this alleged hoax. 
Uh, yeah, well, that's of course that's Rupelt's famous book. That's not a book about Maury Island. Although no, of does. course not, of course not. But yeah, it did it mention that in one particular section. Right, and and he gives uh, fake names both to to both Crisman and Dahl. He doesn't use a real name in there, so he's trying to discuss it, and trying to say something about it, while at the same time trying to cover it up. You know, like a good Air Force officer. Well, that was very strange, that book. There were two editions of the book. The first edition left it with the impression that he kind of believes that something real is going on. And then he came out with a second edition, which was basically an addendum to the first book, where he says, using the words, I don't, when asked about UFO reality, that he didn't believe it at all, ever. So it looked right. like there was a dichotomy between the book and the addendum. Is that right. something indicative of maybe he was approached? <laughs> well, yeah, he kind of caved to the pressure after a while. Uh, years later, when it was less important to him, when the truth was less important to him. The <laughs> but uh, the idea that Ray Palmer might have just conducted this whole hoax is just, uh, uh, you know, even if you wanted to buy that in total, and there's really no reason to do that, um, certainly Ray Palmer didn't put Jim Garrison up to subpoenaing <laughs> Chrisman in, in 68. Well, I knew Ray Palmer. Not well, but I knew him, and he seemed, you know, of course he could be very tough in print, but in person he was a very friendly, unassuming kind of guy, and maybe a little embarrassed because he also was handicapped, which we won't go into. But he was, he was yeah, short. He was very short. He was very short. He was like four foot nine or four foot ten. He had a back deformity, which we won't get into. The point is here, he was a very gentle kind of person, and I liked him a lot, by the way. And... As far as what this is, I cannot see him perpetrating hoaxes. Of all the things that I could imagine this dude doing, perpetrating hoaxes was not amongst them. Well, uh, of course, Palmer was famous for publishing the Shaver stories, and Richard Shaver, by contrast, was a giant person. And uh, the information that he got about the De Rose and all that stuff was basically channeled to him through his uh, welding equipment in, was in Trenton, or, you know, some town in Pennsylvania. So, uh, and that, of course, reversed, totally reversed the fortunes of the pulp magazines. People were fascinated by that. And Chrisman's, again, Chrisman's letter to Palmer was basically a story uh, in the shape, along the Shaver lines. Now, I will say one other thing about the, uh, Palmer is that he hired Arnold to investigate Chrisman. He knew who Chrisman was, but he never told Arnold. He had already received and published letters by Fred Chrisman, but he never mentioned that to Kenneth Arnold. So there's some basis to that, uh, to the idea that there's some kind of manipulation going on here. But this is also true of Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison knew Fred, must have known of Fred Crisman because he knew Guy Bannister and they were actively involved in uh, FBI work in the Pacific Northwest at the, at the time. But he never mentions that. Garrison never mentions that in his biography. So there's always, Fred Crisman's presence is always telegraphed ahead in this story in very mysterious ways that are still, you know, dimly understood. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, 
And we're talking conspiracy theories with probably one of the foremost cons- conspiracy theory investigators in the country, Ken Thomas. He publishes Steam Shuffle Press. And for those who are wondering, what is it and how do you get a copy? <laughs> well, there's uh, steamshovelpress.com. I'll probably give you all the information you need. Uh, the post office box is 210553, St. Louis, Missouri, 63121. Uh, $7 for a sample issue. A four-issue subscription costs $25. There are two published anthologies of Steam Shovel Press, one of them called Popular Alienation and another one called Popular <laughs> Paranoia. Uh, but, again, the easiest way, I guess, is to use the web. I've got about like, a dozen books in print on, on different uh, conspiracy topics. And I have a new one coming out in May called Parapolitics. I'm going to try to champion this term parapolitics as opposed to conspiracy theory, which is, you know, kind of a media handle that helps to, you know, put the curtain of ridicule around these topics. Well, okay, why do you use the word parapolitics? That implies a lot of things that are a little bit less than normal or conventional. So would you explain? Actually, in the latest issue of Steam Shovel, I have a kind of long editorial talking about this prefix para, which, of course, you're using on the Paracast as well. It's, uh, it's also, the, you know, using the word paranoia, for instance, which we all get accused of being if you get into conspiracy theories. And basically what it means is something that runs alongside something else. So when you talk about paranormal experiences, you're talking about experiences that, that you have alongside your everyday experience. And when you talk about parapolitics, you're talking about events and uh, influences and forces that go alongside what is generally viewed as the normal political process. So that's why I kind of, it's not my term. It's actually a term that developed by a scholar in Berkeley uh, named Peter Dale Scott, uh, who, who later abandoned the term for something called deep politics. But I still I think it has a lot of value. And I think, you know, you really have to, it's really important to understand that the big part of the conspiracy is this mainstream media that we have out there that, you know, wants to just say, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory and just totally dismiss it and ridicule it. Ken, I want to come back to something that you brought up before, which is smoking gun evidence on the MJ-12 episode. Can you fill us in on that a little bit? Okay, yeah. Um, there's a book uh, where we go into detail about this called Wilhelm Reich and the Cold War by a guy named Jim Martin. And I helped Jim with a lot of the research in that book. And uh, the one chapter that we have that deals with this is well, I used as an article in an issue of Steam Shovel. So it's, it's easier to get the back issue of Steam Shovel than it is to find the book. But the basic thing is the, the uh, Cutler-Twining memo, which is a famous uh, MJ-12 document that still resides in the National Archives. I've held it in my hand. Uh, you know, uh, if it's a hoax, then the National Archives doesn't believe it enough uh, to actually take it out of its collection. But it has a, uh, a date on it uh, of rescheduling something called a special studies meeting subgroup of MJ-12. And the date matches perfectly a date uh, that uh, Jim found in the archives of, um, oh, don't let the name escape me today. It was a, a, a kitchen cabinet member of Eisenhower in, uh, in Tucson. It had, had basically a memo saying that uh, he needs to reschedule this meeting because he's receiving information from Wilhelm Reich about Reich's uh, battles with UFOs out in the Tucson desert. So just by what I call triangulation of research, you know, like triangulation of fire in the Kennedy assassination, 
the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the dating of these two things. And I work as a professional archivist, you know, um, and I have for 20 years. So I can say with some certainty that there's just absolutely no way that uh, over these distances of time and space that somebody planted a memo in this archives in Tucson that matches so perfectly with the, uh, the Cutler-Twining memo. So, I mean, that's all a little arcane, I guess, for anybody listening. But again, you know, it's in, I have it in an issue of Steam Shovel, and, and it's in that book. Sorry, but for those who really haven't been following the UFO lore over the years, what is or was MJ-12? <laughs> MJ-12 was this secret group that was set up by uh, Harry Truman after the Roswell crash. It supposedly consisted of 12 people, you know, like the 12 disciples, to basically try to figure out what to do about this new uh, threat that America faced from aliens in space. And, I mean, and there's, there's, you know, the Roswell, of course, is a big famous thing in all UFO history, and there are many, uh, many other things to say about uh, MJ-12. Uh, you know, it doesn't really, actually, it doesn't really even prove that there are aliens or anything like that, just that there is, that the government believes it enough that it set up this group. What about the late Philip Corso? Do you believe that he was really the dispenser of some secret technology retrieved from the alien crash and given out to American industry? Do you believe the book The Day After Roswell is authentic in that sense? Well, it's interesting because it connects to the Maury Island case. It After does? the crash of Davidson <laughs> and Brown, the Air Force investigators, the, what, they, they sent out counterintelligence people to investigate that crash, and they said, uh, they were talking about the debris, they said that if anything similar ever happens and we recover some debris, it needs to be sent to the foreign technologies desk of, I guess, the U.S. Air Force. And this is precisely where Philip Corso says all of the Roswell technology was parceled out of. So you do have, again, you have a triangulation of research there that's the, that suggests there's some reality behind that. And then also there is a famous essay by one of the signers of the MJ-12 documents, one of the original MJ-12 members, a guy named Vannevar Bush, in which he sets out a very eerie description of personal computers, personal computing technology. And this is an essay that was published shortly after the Roswell crash. Was that the Memex? Well, I believe that's the name of the device. Uh, I don't know if it was a mimic device, but it was, it was kind of, you know, it was his conception of it from, you know, the viewpoint of a scientist in 1947, basically kind of a Rube Goldberg-type desk with microfiche and stuff like that, that uh, the essay, which is called As We May Think, is, you know, it's highly regarded by, you know, programmers and people who originally started working with Hypertext Markup. And so, this, so the idea, so the full idea of what Corso was saying is not just that, you know, we got Velcro and radar, but that the personal computers that everybody uses every day might have been back-engineered from the Roswell crash. Well, integrated circuits and all that stuff and putting everything on a wafer. And I envision the scene, I don't know if you follow this at all, but David and I do. Earlier this year, Steve Jobs addresses the throngs at the Macworld Exposition in San Francisco and they have Paul Adelini, the CEO of Intel, appear in a puff of smoke wearing these bunny suits that they wear in clean rooms, and he has this <laughs> wafer in his hand, which was basically symbolic to say that now the chips are ready for Apple computer to put Intel processors in their computers. And that kind of reminds me of the pages, the chapters in The Day After Roswell, where Philip Corso is talking about recovering something that looked like a wafer in the Roswell crash. 
Yeah, well, there's a lot to be said for that. There was an enormous explosion of technology uh, right after the Roswell crash. But, of course, this was right after the war, too, and uh, all the resources that had been devoted to conducting the war had now been to redirected to trying to, you know, improve uh, technological sophistication. Uh, but, yeah, you know, and, of course, all that all that wafer business reminds me of religion, too. You know, here's the holy wafer <laughs> that we're going to put inside the computer. <laughs> Well, the thing about the Memex, and it is indeed the Memex that we're talking about, but the Memex was more of an overall theoretical idea of how to work with information that was microphone-based. It wasn't really thought of in terms of the you know, integrated circuits or a deeper level of underlying technology. So I don't know if, right. I, if I'm willing to make that connection yet. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, of course, we're still dealing with, it's, we're still in 1947, we're just beginning to back-engineer. It's, it's really more of Vannevar Bush's kind of philosophical ruminations, right. and as we may think, they kind of reset what the way people thought about storing information and being able to access information and uh, do the kinds of things that we do on PCs now. Well, it's about nonlinearity of access. It's about relating information. An old friend of mine, Ted Nelson, did a lot of subsequent work on this topic, and I believe he was largely inspired by the uh, by the idea of the memics and the as we may think essay. Also, I mean, a lot of the technological innovation that happened after the mid '40s, I, I have to think, was tied to the beginning of the nuclear age. Well, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a uh... After the war, that we see this enormous acceleration of, of, of knowledge and technical improvement that you know goes on to this day. You know, the, it just keeps getting going faster and faster. You know, whether yeah. that's just the natural development in human society or whether there's some kind of alien intervention there. You know, I'm no more of a, I have no more of a definitive answer on that than anybody. But we hope you have the answer, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. We I advertised that you would have the answer and that all the answers would be revealed, but then there's somebody at the door right now, three men in dark suits with a black Cadillac. <laughs> of course, they don't use Cadillacs anymore. They don't sell as well. I think they're black BMWs. I forget. <laughs> no, they would be using Lexuses. Okay. Or those Mercedes uh, SUVs. Um, Infinities, actually. I like Infinity myself. Infinities, there you go. Hey, we're just about out of time here, and we've only scratched the surface. And what I want to do, and I really hope, is that we can have you back on really soon, Ken, and we want to talk about more of the ramifications of these and maybe expand that into some of the other things you cover. So, but I'm going to ask oh, you before I let you go, Yeah. before I let you go, please tell us again about Steam Shuffle Press, how we get a copy, and about the next book that's coming out in May. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, well, steamshovelpress.com will get you all the information you need to get uh, the current issue of Steam Shovel. Uh, the book that I have coming out, hopefully in May, is called Parapolitics, and that's from Adventures Unlimited Press. Next year, I'm going to have a big coffee table book that may be published by Reader's Digest. Uh, but all my other books, you know, you can do an Amazon search for Ken Thomas. And I would caution people interested in the Maury Island book is that that book was published, uh, I don't know how many years ago now, by a publisher who's, who died and has gone out of business. And so it's getting harder and harder to find. So... It may be the first thing you want to try to search for when you look for, for my books and get a copy before. Because I've had things like the original edition of The Octopus was so, selling for like $100 a copy for a while there because it became so scarce. This is underground information, hard to get kind of stuff. So um, I recommend everybody to just grab it while they can, while it's still there. Although, you know, although I'm still fishing around to find another publisher for a newer edition. There's all kinds of information comes out on the Maury Island case all of the time. 
Mm. But that's basically it. Just the steamshovelpress.com will give, keep people up to date on what I'm up to. Well, thank you very much. Ken Thomas, publisher of Steam Shovel Press. Go to steamshovelpress.com. Ken, we have an open invitation for you because we've only scratched the surface here, and we hope that you'll come back in the near future and we'll talk more about it, okay? Oh, yeah. Well, it was great fun. I hope, uh, I, hope I do get a chance to talk to you guys again soon. Thanks for joining us okay, on this Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in a grand and science fiction tradition. So that's a lot of information to assimilate, Gene. I mean, we've got people who were supposedly involved in the first UFO incident ever now showing up in the JFK conspiracy. That's really, really weird. I mean, that's almost in the realm of the unbelievable. You know, I used to know somebody, and I haven't heard from him in many years, and I'm going to mention his name in the hope that maybe he will be aware that I'm looking for him. I consider him a friend. I'd just like to see what happened. He was investigating Fred Chrisman back in the late 70s and 80s. His name is Floyd Murray, and he was a writer researcher who lived in southeastern Pennsylvania. Very smart guy, and he was collecting information about this guy for a number of years, and Ken Thomas never heard of him. I asked Ken about it before we started the interview. And I just wonder, Floyd Murray, if you're listening to the show, I'd like you to get a hold of us, Gene at theparacast.com, and maybe we can find out what, if anything, you learned about Fred Christman. What is it with all this paranormal stuff and Pennsylvania? What's the, what's the connection? There's so many researchers, so much weird stuff seems to sit, sort of source... In Pennsylvania, what's up with that stage? And I thought New Jersey was the capital of weird. Well, some people think Arizona is the capital of weird because we get a lot of crazy stuff here, too. No, that's just heat, man. That's just the heat frying your brains. It's got to be. It's just like Florida. It's just... Is that what it is? Well, the sun cooking down on your head all day has got to have some effect on your perception of reality, don't you think? Are you addressing a personal sense here? You know, a personal yeah. sample? Sure. <laughs> I mean, how long have you been out there in Arizona? 13 years. 13? 13 uh -oh. years. Not 7 years, 13 years. Soon to be 23 years. Ooh, 13 years in the desert. I think there's a book title there, Gene. Yes, there is. You and I have to write that book. You've been in the desert 13 years. I don't know where I've been the last 13 years. That's, that's a stranger story involving George Lucas 
Ewoks and a lot of grain alcohol. Before we get into the grain alcohol, I should tell everybody that we're going to have Ken Thomas back in a few weeks because he only scratched the surface here. The world of conspiracy theories is very involved, and we didn't even get into the power of politics thing very much, and even whether there was any conspiracy related to the 9-11, which a lot of people think there might have been. Uh, there are a lot of unanswered questions about that day, certainly. There, there's a lot of noise about that day, but at the same time, I think there are a bunch of valid questions. I, I, I have a lot of questions, and there's actually been some great stuff written about that, and there's a really good documentary out there. But this is the Paracast, not parapolitics, right? I mean, we are the Paracast. My impression here, however, is that there may be some kind of overlap here. At least Ken Thomas seems to be able to weave the UFO mystery into the conspiracy of the Kennedy assassination. So maybe the entire world of parapolitics has some kind of paranormal connection, too. Oh, boy. I guess it just never gets strange enough for us, huh? Have you gotten any feedback yet from your appearance with your brother describing your UFO sighting in Venezuela? Yeah, actually, I got some email from a few friends of mine who were definitely surprised at my admission about this episode. Um, one of an, an old friend of mine, uh, Rich Kuttner from Florida, actually wrote to me with some interesting theories about the whole issue of UFOs being seen more often in less technologically capable societies than ours. Um, and his comments centered on ideas dealing with the interest in electricity on the part of perhaps these visitors, if that's what they are. But um, he had some interesting comments about that. But not, a lot of my friends didn't write to me. I think maybe they're still wondering if they want to be my friends anymore. Well, I want to be your friend, so you have one friend left. <laughs> I think I have a few friends left, thank goodness. But, uh, but thank you, Gene. That's very sweet. And we'll talk to you next week, and we're going to explore cryptozoology and other stuff on the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.